So we haven't quite made up our minds yet about when it's right and when it's wrong to use the tools of medicine to enhance who we are. Steroids to win sports, wrong. A nose job to be more beautiful, apparently not wrong. But what about chemicals that help students be better students? Well, we know now that drugs like Ritalin and Adderall and Modafinil, which were designed as therapy for people who had trouble focusing or staying awake, are being taken by students now, not because they suffer from those actual deficits, but because they believe it gives them a competitive edge in the classroom, that it makes them, quote-unquote, smarter. And is that right or is it wrong? Well, that sounds like the makings of a debate, so let's have it. Yes or no to this statement. College students should be allowed to take smart drugs. A debate from Intelligence Squared U.S. We are here at the George Washington University in partnership with FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, with four superbly qualified debaters who will argue for and against this motion. College students should be allowed to take smart drugs. As always, our debate goes in three rounds, and then our live audience here at the Jack Morton Auditorium at George Washington University, votes to choose the winner, and only one side wins. Our motion, again, is college students should be allowed to take smart drugs. Let's meet the team arguing for the motion. Please, first welcome Anjan Chatterjee. Anjan, uh, you are a professor at UPenn's Perelman School of Medicine and chair of neurology at Pennsylvania Hospital. Uh, You see patients, mostly patients who have cognitive disorders, but you also do research on the issue before us, questions of neuroethics and neuroaesthetics. And we're wondering, do you think that there's a day for you as a clinician when you will be prescribing drugs routinely, smart drugs to students as part of your routine practice? Well, it certainly could come to that. My students used to think that I was crazy for hassling with insurance companies Uh, And that what I should do is open a boutique cosmetic neurology clinic in a fancy part of town. (laughs) Plans for that? Uh, Let's see how it goes. All right. Good (laughs) enough. Ladies and gentlemen, Anjan Chatterjee. (laughs) And Anjan, please tell us who your partner is. My partner is the much smarter than any drug, Professor Nita Farahani. Ladies and gentlemen, Nita Farahani. Nita, you are a professor of law and a professor of philosophy at Duke, where you are also director of the Duke Science and Society program. You're arguing for the motion. College students should be allowed to take smart drugs. But it's interesting to note um, that Duke came up with a ruling that the, quote, unauthorized use of prescription medicine to enhance academic performance, unquote, is cheating under its student code of conduct. Do you see other universities following suit now? I certainly hope not. Uh, without forethought, Duke adopted this really ill-conceived policy instead of leading the way on being a college that empowers students to make choices about this issue for themselves. So maybe they'll be listening tonight. I hope we'll so. We'll see. All right, t- <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, the team arguing for the motion that college students should be allowed to take smart drugs. And we have two debaters arguing against the motion. Please, ladies and gentlemen, welcome Eric Racine. Eric, welcome. You are director of the Neuroethics Research Unit at IRCM, and you hold academic appointments at the University of Montreal and McGill. Um, Neuroethics, it's a relatively new area of study, uh, and in fact, it didn't exist at your research group before you arrived there in 2006. Can you tell us in, in a sentence what neuroethics is? 
Sure, very briefly, neuroethics is a new interdisciplinary field which studies ethical questions associated with neuroscience. So it's right on topic for tonight. Absolutely. And tell us who your partner is. My partner is the amazing philosopher, Nicole Vincent. Ladies and gentlemen, Nicole Vincent. And, Nicole, you are also arguing against the motion college students should be allowed to take drugs. You're a professor of philosophy and law and neuroscience at Georgia State. For several years, uh, you led a research project focused on cognitive enhancement uh, and moral and legal responsibility. In a related TED Talk in your native Australia, you started off by asking the audience that if there were a pill that could make everyone there more intelligent and smarter and more focused, would they take it? And the response was complete silence and then laughter. Was, was that a yes from the audience? So I asked the question rhetorically, and I think everyone was expecting that there would be this rhetorical silence, including the guy who calls out, yes! <laughs> we all need that guy to call out yes. Maybe you'll get some of those yeses tonight on our vote. Ladies and gentlemen, the team arguing against the motion that college students should be allowed to take smart drugs. Now, this is a debate. It is a contest, a contest of logic and persuasion, ideas, even perhaps a little bit of humor and anecdote. And you, our live audience here at George Washington University, will decide our winners. By the time the debate has ended, you will have been asked to vote twice once before the debate and once again after, the res- after you've heard all of the arguments and the team whose numbers have changed the most in percentage point terms will be declared our winner. So let's register the first vote. If you go to the keypads at your seat and look again at the motion, college students should be allowed to take smart drugs. If you agree with the motion, push number one. If you disagree, push number two. And if you're undecided, push number three. The other keys are not live. Uh, You can ignore them. And if you uh, feel you voted in error, just correct yourself. The system will lock in your last vote, and we'll keep the voting open until I stop talking. And so this means you have a little bit of an extension. And again, just remember, you hold that thing down for about three or four seconds until the number registers. It looks to me as though everybody has completed it. Okay, so remember how you voted And again, you'll vote a second time after the debate. The difference between the two numbers is how we declare our winner. Let's move on to round one. Round one, opening statements by each debater in turn. They will be six minutes each. Our motion is this. College students should be allowed to take smart drugs. Arguing first for the motion, and you can make your way to the lectern, Nita Farahani, a professor of law and philosophy at Duke and member of the Presidential Commission for the Study of Bioethical Issues. Ladies and gentlemen, Nita Farahani. Good evening. Thank you to our host, moderator, and participants in this debate. My name is Nita Farahani, and I'm here to convince you that college students should be allowed to take smart drugs. In a little while, you'll hear from my partner, Anjan Chatterjee, who will debunk many of the scientific claims against smart drugs. Before that, I want to convince you of two things. First, colleges should empower students to make their own choices about how they will change their brains. And second, the gradual improvement of our brains is a social good that we should pursue in society. Colleges should educate and empower students to make informed choices about smart drugs. There's a common saying in education that we should teach students how to think, not what to think. Teaching a student how to think encourages them to question their own beliefs and to question the claims that they are presented with. 
Banning smart drugs disempowers students from making educated choices for themselves. And it denies them their ability to think smarter. Being protective of students and telling them what to do to change their brains leaves students poorly prepared for life after college in a world that will present them with choices and with pressure. A campus culture built on prohibitions and policing students is a campus that is at odds with encouraging freedom of thought and liberty. It fosters fear and ignorance instead of courageous deliberation. A recent online poll found one in five of the 1,400 respondents had used Ritalin, ProVigil, or beta blockers for non-medical purposes. Polls of incoming college freshmen show that at least one in three has used smart drugs. We can pretend that this isn't a choice that large swaths of people are already making, or we can embrace that smart drugs are just one of the many ways that people exercise free choices in their lives. Colleges are incredibly well-positioned to equip students with the information and the skills necessary to balance the risks and benefits of taking or forgoing these drugs. It's time that we recognize that college students are moral agents, capable of acting freely and making judgments for which they can be praised, blamed, or held responsible. We should respect their dignity and enable them to decide whether caffeine, prep classes, neural stimulation, exercise, or smart drugs are ways that they want to change their brains. Look at what's happening in high schools around the country when bans on so-called dangerous substances are being made. One school administrator from Indiana testified before Congress that high school students in his district are trafficking banned foods on school property thanks to a federal law prohibiting what can be served in school lunchrooms. Students have been caught bringing in, even selling, salt, pepper, sugar in schools to add taste to the bland and tasteless cafeteria food. This is the sad reality of what bans do in educational settings. They spur underground markets where the very goods prohibited become more alluring and go unchecked. This puts students at greater danger of taking tampered substances without the benefit of transparency. Instead of banning salt, pepper, sugar, soda, or smart drugs, let's teach students how to weigh the risks and benefits and to make choices for themselves. This says nothing, of course, about the frightening intrusion into private lives of college students to enforce a ban on smart drugs. Can you imagine regular screening and testing of students to try to detect taking these drugs? But I want to convince you of a second thing, that enhancing our brains is a social good that we should be pursuing. The gradual improvement in how our brains function is a social good worth pursuing, and a social good we pursue all the time. We enhance our brains all the time and every day, from coffee we drink first thing in the morning, the SAT prep classes we take to gain college admission, the music classes we enroll in, the basic nutrition we follow, the exercise we undertake, the classes we attend. All of these things change our brains, and that's a great thing. To the extent that smart drugs work to improve focus, motivation, attention, concentration, or memory, we should celebrate them, not prohibit them. What if if taking a smart drug gives us the capacity to study harder, longer, and better such that we cure cancer, or develop tools for staying in better touch, for solving social ills, or for improving our overall happiness? Shouldn't we encourage rather than ban these opportunities? Improving our brain functioning can influence important outcomes for individuals, like making them more successful at work, enhancing their earning potential, alleviating their likelihood of experiencing social and economic difficulties, and improving their overall well-being. Widespread improvement in cognitive function would result in widespread societal benefits, like economic gains or even reducing dangerous errors. Shouldn't we encourage this? 
We shouldn't think of smart drugs like taking steroids in sports. Life isn't a competitive game where there are winners and there are losers and spectators on the sidelines. Improving our brains is inherently valuable in and of itself, and not because it offers some kind of competitive advantage for one person versus another. Improving our memory, our motivation, our concentration, our capacities improves our opportunities in life, which can mean better living conditions and greater flourishing for all of us. Knowledge is a good in and of itself, and using smart drugs to give us access to even more knowledge is truly invaluable. We should celebrate and not prohibit these opportunities. You'll hear fear-mongering talks about coercion and the vulnerability of students tonight on being on the slippery slope toward a dystopia and a rat race of enhancements. These fear tactics are just that, fear. Not only are smart drugs not bad, they may offer significant good, but regardless, it's up to college students as moral agents to decide for themselves. I urge you to vote in favor of personal choice and freedom, to vote in favor of educational institutions serving as educators and not nannies, and in favor of collectively improving our insights and our opportunities in life. Thank you. Thank you, Nita Farahani. And our motion is college students should be allowed to take smart drugs and here to make his opening statement against this motion, Eric Racine. He is director of the Neuroethics Research Unit and associate professor at the IRCM. Ladies and gentlemen, Eric Racine. Good evening, members of the public, fellow debaters, and thank you, organizers, for allowing me to come to Washington. It's always a welcome uh, opportunity to warm up a little bit from the cold weather in Montreal. So tonight, I hope to convince you that we should reject the motion that we have before us. And this won't be a dogmatic stance on my behalf. I think the facts, the scientific facts, and sound reasoning and policy bring us there. I'll make two remarks in my, my short introductory remarks. First of all, I try to unpack a little bit the proposition before us. What do we mean by smart drugs, for example? Second, I'll try to highlight that there have been two major moral criteria put forward to assess these smart drugs, moral acceptability and moral praiseworthiness. And I think if you're committed to the foundations of both these stances, you will reject the motion before us. So first, a couple of remarks on the uh, proposition. Smart drugs, do they exist? Well, if we look at scientific reviews that have been published on this, it doesn't seem to be the case. There are no scientific reviews suggesting that these drugs are efficacious, that they actually improve cognition and intelligence in those who use them. Furthermore, we don't even know for whom they would work and what would be the risks entailed by their use on the long run. So I think smart drugs uh, don't exist, so we don't have to allow them because, really, they're not, we're not there yet. A second important piece of the proposition tonight is the allowing. Who should be doing the allowing? Should it be college students? Obviously, that would be a bit contradictory. Should it be college administrations? I, could, I think they could have vested interest in uh, uh, pressuring their students to use drugs to gain advantage. Uh, physicians, probably not also. They could have also an interest in caring for the worried well. So I think this is really a 
question that we should be answering and tackling at the very highest level of moral and political analysis. It concerns all of us because once, if ever, these drugs are out of the barn and start getting more traction, all of us will be concerned. They will impact college environments, the workplace, and so on. Second set of remarks. Now, what are the moral criteria to assess if this is ethical? Should we be engaging in cognitive enhancement and the use of smart drugs? As I mentioned, two major moral positions have been put on the table. I'll try to explain them very briefly and come back to it in the Q&A. First of all, moral acceptability is basically capturing a basic set of concerns enshrined in liberal democracies. If, for example, tonight you were worried from the ethics standpoint, if ever college students would be free and autonomous in making such decisions, that's a concern reflected in moral acceptability. If you thought that perhaps we didn't have or were concerned that we didn't have the data to suggest that these drugs were safe and efficacious, that's also a fundamental condition of basic moral acceptability. And we don't have these data. We don't have pilot studies about the autonomy of students. We don't have convincing data that these drugs work. So I think from the standpoint of moral acceptability, we need to reject the proposition. But furthermore, if you were concerned by other types of issues that we capture under the label of moral praiseworthiness, you could also be rejecting the motion. Uh, if, for example, from the ethics standpoint, you were worried that perhaps this is not a genuine way to achieve oneself, it is not a proper way to seek uh, self-fulfillment, that it's somehow cheating or threatening our moral ideals, that's a concern captured under the label of moral praiseworthiness. If, from the medical and scientific standpoint, you were worried that perhaps physicians would be diverted as a resource from attending to important neurological or psychiatric conditions, for example, that would be a concern captured under the umbrella of moral praiseworthiness, i.e., is this practice morally laudable and praiseworthy? And the answer is no. No, because we haven't really debated this issue. We haven't made up our minds. We haven't been discussing with our neighbors and in public enough to really know if this is something we want to genuinely pursue. So I hope to have convinced you that it is premature at this point in time to consider the practice of using smart drugs to be A, morally acceptable, and B, moreover, morally praiseworthy. And if you're still not convinced yet, my colleague and partner, Nicole Vincent, will stretch the arguments further to show that even if you would grant some minimal moral acceptability to the practice, there would be still substantive issues to uh, grasp with. Thank you. Thank you, Eric Racine. And a reminder of what's going on, we are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two teams of two, arguing it out over this motion. College students should be allowed to take smart drugs. You've heard from the first two debaters, and now on to the third. I'd like to introduce Anjan Chatterjee, professor at the University of Pennsylvania's Perelman School of Medicine, chair of neurology at Pennsylvania Hospital, arguing for the motion, college students should be allowed to take smart drugs. Ladies and gentlemen, Anjan Chatterjee. Thank you. When people come to see me in the clinic, they have choices. They can choose not to see me, 
but if they're there, they presumably have already made that choice. They even have choices not to follow the recommendations I might make. Gone are the days when physicians uh, basically told patients what to do and expected them to obey. And it's a good thing. We're in partnership with our patients uh, to try to provide decent care. People have the right to choose. Now, this is not the motion under consideration, but I would suggest this radical claim that college students are people. (laughs) People have the right to choose what they would do uh, or have done to their bodies, and college students have the right to choose what is done uh, or what they would do to their bodies. Of course, these choices have to be made with a certain amount of knowledge. We want people to be informed about their uh, choices. And so what is the information? Eric correctly pointed out that the data that we have is woefully inadequate. What we do know is that most of these medications work on the catecholamine systems. That is that they increase the level of norepinephrine and dopamine within neuronal synapses. And as best we can tell, these have effects on arousal, on attention, and sometimes on parts of our memory and parts of executive function, our ability to be able to, to navigate uh, complex uh, arenas. Now, you might be concerned about side effects, and so some of the effects themselves are counterintuitive. So t- to the extent that there is data that some people actually improve with these medications, Some studies suggest that people who are at the lower end of the distribution with some of these abilities, like working memory, actually improve more than people at the higher end of the spectrum. There are some people who think that these don't actually improve cognition, but these are really drive drugs, that they increase motivation, and people feel good about themselves and motivated to work harder. Adverse effects... As a physician, the thing I would be most concerned about would be cardiovascular uh, effects. Uh, People can have cardiac arrhythmias, can have uh, heart attacks, can even have sudden death. Well, there were two studies published in 2011, one in the Journal of the American Medical Association and the other in the New England Journal of Medicine. These are sort of standard, top-line medical journals that looked at many, many, many patients as a retrospective study and basically found that the use of these kinds of stimulant medications did not confer any added risk, cardiovascular risk, as compared to non-user populations. There's a hypothetical risk of addiction, uh, and we just don't know what the rates are of that. In my own practice of treating some people with uh, ADD, not students that uh, decided to come see me for this, uh, that uh, one isn't struck by addiction being a very big issue. But nonetheless, it is something to be uh, aware of. Um, But the point about all of this is that both the promise and the perils of smart drugs are probably overblown. Um, And students should be made aware of what these promises and these perils are. And as Nita said that what colleges are in the business of doing is educating students, educating students to navigate complicated situations uh, when, where there's a certain amount of ambiguity. And we should not take that educational opportunity uh, away from colleges uh, as students uh, are thinking about this. Now, I'm an empiricist 
uh, by nature. And so what I would like to do, it looks like a fairly young crowd, is that for people in the audience that are either students now or have graduated from college in the last four years, raise your hands up. And raise them real high so the people on the podcast can hear you. <laughs> okay. Keep your hands up. Keep, keep them up. Keep them up. Okay. If you... Anjan, just for the people on the podcast, tell our listeners how many, what percentage of the audience is raising their, its hands. I would say, I don't know, maybe 75, 80 percent. Would you okay. agree with that? Yeah, maybe even more. Okay. All right. So keep your hands up. If you or someone you know has taken a smart drug, put down your hand. I think I see one, maybe two. Okay. So the cat is out of the bag. <laughs> Let's just be real about this. Okay. It is happening. Uh, and if you are concerned about this, one might be concerned about the coercive properties, that, uh, the coercive conditions in which students want to take these kinds of drugs. One might be concerned about the fact that we live in intensely competitive times where there are winner-take-all environments, uh, where, where small incremental advantages produce disproportionate rewards. And we might be concerned about that, and I am. However, if one is concerned about that, we should be concerned about the social milieu in which we live, and prohibiting drugs is not the solution to that. It is as if one were then uh, lopping off a minor head of a hydra when the monster still remains unfazed. I would say, take students seriously. Don't infantilize them. And if you respect their autonomy, vote for the motion that college students should be allowed to take smart drugs. Thank you. Thank you, Anjan Chatterjee. And that is our motion. College students should be allowed to take smart drugs. And here, our final debater speaking against the motion in this round, Nicole Vincent, Associate Professor of Philosophy, Law, and Neuroscience at Georgia State University. Ladies and gentlemen, Nicole Vincent. Thank you. So in March this year, the Presidential Commission for the Study of Bioethical Issues released a report um, called Grey Matters, Volume 2. The report recommended, among other things, that once we develop safe and effective medications, safe and effective smart drugs, we should make sure that they are made available equally to everyone. I'm very much in favour of equality, and I'm really glad that the Commission which Nita over there is uh, indeed on, recognized and was sensitive to this, right? This, we need more of this in politics. But here is my worry, that in focusing on the medical side effects, on all the medical problems, what they've actually overlooked is they've overlooked all the other ways that our lives can go really bad, not just because we've had various medical problems. Worse than this, what I'm going to argue is that actually by providing equal access to these medications to everyone, all the things that we really value are going to be jeopardized. So, what are the arguments in favor of smart drugs? So I'm just going to be talking about the safe and effective ones, right? This is the, this is the science fiction future. Presumably the arguments would go something like this. Here's one. Hey, maybe if I can have access to these medications, which don't have any bad side effects... Maybe I can get through all the work that I need to get through quickly. And what then? Well, I'll have spare time, right? And 
Why is that good? Because then I can go and do the things that I really want to do, spend time with my family, maybe stare at the ceiling, which is my you know, favorite uh, occupation while listening to music. Um, or perhaps being students, hey, you need to make sure that you can earn an income, actually have enough time for a part-time job. But would this actually happen? I don't think it would, and here's why. So when you start taking these medications, and suppose that they work like they do for everyone, and you think, great, now I want to make sure that I'll get this work done and in half the time maybe, and then I'll go off home. Do you think everybody else is going to do this as well? Or do you think some people might say, ha, I'm going to work as much time as I would have, but I'll now get much better grades? Some people might say, actually, look, guess what? I'm still not tired. I'm going to keep working. I'm going to make sure that I get awesome grades. Think of what this does to your grades. You've done a sufficiently good job. You've, you've pulled the party line. Unfortunately, their actions are going to force you to not be able to get the very thing that you wanted, the extra time, to make sure that you get those things that you wanted, right? Time with family. Time for you to relax, or whatever else it is. They're going to force you to have to also give those things up through competition. Very simple. Here's another way in which I think people think that smart drugs might be helpful. You could get, maybe you can get better grades, get that really awesome job, right? But remember, if everyone has access to those awesome medications, the ones that work for everyone, because we figured it out, and in that particular scenario, all of us get exactly the same advantages. So all the people who could get into those lovely professions, it's still them who can only get into those professions. So unless you get a head start, you're an early adopter, you won't get the advantage. But think of what happens if you do get the early advantage because you're an early adopter. Well, you initially extend your reach and you get into that position. Great! But then, of course, you've gotten into this new cadre. You've made life more difficult for them. The more people like you get into that particular uh, cadre, the more they're going to feel like, man, now I've got to compete harder. Either they work harder or they say, draw the obvious conclusion, also take the smart drugs. The longer you remain committed to this position, all that's going to happen is that more people will enter into this particular field and start using smart drugs for exactly those same reasons. Eventually, once everybody else is on smart drugs, you will simply lose all that investment in time. And you will lose that job because we'll simply go back up to the same normal. Everybody is going to equ equally benefit. It doesn't strike me that either of those strategies is going to actually get us those things that we want. If anything, they may even lead us to disaster. Now, the real arguments, I think, have to do with the sorts of things that Nita over there pointed out. The possibility of scientific discovery. The possibility of better learning, right? Maybe we can develop better medications, cure cancer. Maybe we can develop better smart drugs. Um, but this does not come without a cost. What the cost is that when you insert smart drugs into the equation, into a really competitive society, what you are doing is you are increasing competition. You're making it possible for some people to up the ante even more. They can now say, I am actually going to try and get further advantage, and I am going to work harder. Competition will increase. It's not going to decrease. The amount of time that you're going to have to do all those other things isn't going to be greater. It'll be less. If you care for all the other things in your life, think about what you will be using to purchase that lifestyle. 
I only came to this country two and a half years ago, and I've lived in six countries. People here work so hard, harder than any other country I've lived in. Do you really want to take smart drugs that are going to make you into even better-oiled machines that can be like gladiators, getting rid of all the time in your life and not be able to not be able to get all the things that make life worth living. Nita and Anjan would like you to vote for the proposition. That mm-hmm. vote closes the door on Nicole, this particular discussion. Nicole Vincent, I'm sorry, I have to cut you off. Your time is up. Thank, Thank you. you very much. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is college students should be allowed to take smart drugs. Now, remember how you voted at the beginning of the debate. Reminding you again, we're going to have you vote a second time. And again, it's the numbers, it's the change in numbers between the two votes that determines our winners. Now we move on to round two, and round two are where the debaters address one another in turn, and they also take questions from me and from you in our live audience here at George Washington University. Again, the motion is college students should be allowed to take smart drugs. The team arguing for the motion, Nita Farahani and Anjan Chatterjee, are arguing that, first of all, it's a matter of choice. There's a philosophical argument to be made here that college students are grown ups, they can make decisions on their own, that colleges should be encouraging students to make smart choices and they're capable of doing so. They also argue that it's a good thing to have smarter students. It's good for the students and it's good for society overall. On the science, they concede that the data is inadequate, but that the tendency of the studies that do exist show that the concern about side effects is greatly exaggerated, that in fact the perils are as overblown as the promise. The team arguing against the motion, Eric Racine and Nicole Vincent, they are also arguing both philosophically and scientifically. On the science side, they are very concerned that the studies do not tell us even that smart drugs really exist. It's not clear that they work. The side effects are not determined, and that for that reason alone, the moral acceptability of these This use of these drugs is unacceptable. And they also make a philosophical argument about the distorting impacts on society. If we move to a world where everybody's dosing themselves to get smarter, it's not going to be a very pleasant place to live, that there would be, in a sense, an arms race for this kind of medication, and the winners and losers would still be winners and losers based probably on their their means and access to these drugs. I want to go go through uh, both the scientific and the philosophical arguments, but starting with the science side, since it's a little bit more concrete. And I found it interesting, Anjan Chatterjee, that on the one hand, you conceded, you used the word, the data being inadequate. And it's actually your opponent's argument that that by itself is reason for for serious concern about these drugs to the point that they don't think students should be taking something when we actually don't know, number one, that they work, number two, just how harmful they can be. Can you respond to that point? Sure. Um, We always make decisions under uh, conditions of ambiguity, and to to choose not to do something is a decision as well. I think the data, what would concern me the most, have to do with side effects, uh, and particularly the cardiovascular side effects. I think what we have is fairly convincing that that is not uh, such a big uh, area to be concerned about. Whether they have benefits... um, For some people, it seems that they do. Uh, I agree the data are not there. But the the decision of whether to take a drug or not, for me, is largely predicated on the worry about side effects. But I'm I'm confused by, on on the one hand, you're not saying that there's a whole lot of evidence one way or the other 
And your opponents are suggesting we err on the side of caution. You're saying that level of caution is not necessary? I'm saying that level of caution, if the caution is driven by concern about side effects, is not warranted. All right, let's take it to your opponents, Eric Racine. Well, I I think it's also important to acknowledge that we also lack data on the efficacy of these drugs. Risk could be, you know, fairly moderate to low, but at the same time, we don't have good efficacy data. So why do something which may involve moderate risks, but actually pans out to nothing? And Eric, when you say efficacy, you, you're not talking about them as a therapy for people who actually Absolutely have deficits not. of attention. Exactly. You're talking about whether they make people who don't have an attention deficit disorder get sort of super focused. You're saying that evidence doesn't exist. Exactly. You know, and one concerning aspect of the data uh, alluded to in the discussion is the fact that these drugs could enhance motivation. You could be more eager to work, yet those... Uh, effects could be those also responsible for uh, their addictive properties. So, you know, there are things we don't know about these drugs, and if there's actually nothing panning out in terms of benefits, it's not worth the risk. That's usually how we weigh other kinds of decisions. Moreover, when people are ill and really have serious health conditions, we, you know, we are willing to take some risks. But when someone's healthy, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Need of our honey. I appreciate that uh, Anjan is as responsible of a scientist as he is to be as cautious in his conclusions, but um, the data are better than uh, I think Anjan gives credit to. And so uh, a recent meta-analysis that was just published about modafinil showed, in fact, uh, it does appear to be efficacious. It does seem to work and help. And I can attest as somebody who has tried modafinil that it is something that, in fact, does improve for me personally, my wakefulness, my ability to concentrate. It's, it's, it's a, just to clarify for people, it's a, it's a medication that was developed to fight narcolepsy. The it was, to it was developed to fight narcolepsy. It has been tested in Air Force pilots. It has been tested in the broader population. There are quite a few studies that show that not only does it improve things like motor coordination, but also potentially performance IQ. And it appears to come without the kind of jittery side effects that things like caffeine do. Likewise, uh, depending on how we categorize smart drugs, which I think should be quite broad, there are drugs that improve memory. We know that these work uh, for people who have dementia and Alzheimer's. They also appear to uh, benefit working memory for people who do not have those types of conditions. Um, And to Anjan's point, uh, rather than oversell the benefits, uh, the benefits clearly seem to be there. We need much bigger studies to fully understand what the benefits are. The risk do not seem to be there in any significant way. And so given that the direction of the studies all seem to support quite a bit um, of efficacy, from my perspective, this kind of precautionary principle approach, which is wait until there's much more data, undermines the ability of people to look at the data, educate them about it, and be be able to make their own informed choices about whether or not it's worth it to them. And Nicole Vincent, your argument is sort of data neutral. I mean, you're, you're, you're actually imagining a world where they solve all of these problems, and you still think the problem would exist. I still think the problem would exist, and I'll, but I'll, I'll just make two comments about um, the benefits in regards to motivation and in regards to the risks and what we should do about them. So notice that when people talk about motivation, that modafinil increases your motivation to be able to work. Here's basically uh, what it does. If you've got a very boring task, it'll make it a lot easier for you to do. That's, that's what that means, right? And that's kind of cool, because there's loads of boring tasks we all have to do. Um, Only problem with that is that that's precisely the kind of scenario that troubles me about the future. Not 
if I can't notice the fact that the things that I'm doing are extraordinarily boring, maybe even useless, like, you know, no meaning, that's a good reason for me not to do that, not, not to become blind to that. But in regards to the risks, you know, um, it's easy to... Scientists are awesome in that there's always a scientist who says, look, actually, the risks are great. Another scientist says the risks are not so great. Um, and I am not properly qualified to comment on that, but prohibition based on risks is not based on the idea that I'm going to tell somebody who wants to take the risk that you're not allowed to. That's not the idea, right? The idea is the same as what happened with doping in sports. That I don't want those people to take the medications and then push everybody to have to do that as well, Mm -hmm. to coerce them and diminish their freedom because somebody decided to do that. Let's take that to to your opponent, uh, Anjan Chatterjee, the the argument that there would be a sort of arms race of medication, that if if you you may not want to, but if you want to stay in the game and everybody else is, you have to get into it. There already is an arms race. And is that a good thing? And it might not be a good thing, but I do want to make one point about what Nicole said because you said what she... Uh, her claims were data neutral, and I think they were not completely data neutral. I think one claim she made was that these medications actually increase people's competitiveness. And I would suggest that these, the use of these medications don't increase people's competitiveness. They are an epiphenomenon of the competitive environment in which uh, we find ourselves. Um, so is, to, put that, into, arms to race... put that into English, I would understand. Okay. So what that means? I think is... I can actually do it. You're saying that people aren't ta- people aren't becoming more competitive because they're taking drugs. They're taking drugs because they're more competitive. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And as, so, if that's your concern, deal with the competitive nature of our society. Dealing with the drugs is just yeah, dealing but, with but, the but, surface. But, but she does make a very good point on the on this issue of the comparison to sports. That where there are rules that say this is cheating. And people start to cheat because other people are cheating in order to be able to stay in the game. And, and that's a compelling argument. What do you make of that? Let's take it to Nita Farhani. So um, I take Nicole's position to basically be an anti-competition argument um, and that she would like to have us all be somehow equal. I think that Kurt Vonnegut imagined such a world and a short story that he wrote as well where we uh, made everybody exactly equal and everybody exactly the same. That wasn't a pretty future. It was a science fiction story for a reason. Um, I think... It is true that society continues to progress. That's a wonderful thing. We could call that a bad thing, that it forces us to keep up. But I bet most of you in this audience, if not all of you, have smartphones. And those smartphones have enabled you to do lots of things, including remember things that you would never remember, like lots of people's phone numbers. I suspect that many people actually took things like an SAT prep course. And many people did things like read to their children or were read to as a child. All of these things improve humanity by enabling us to get to the next step in life, to get to the next stage of our evolution as a society and as a people. And you can call that competition, you can call that forcing, or you could call that opportunities that open a world of right. avenues me, for each me, of us. Let me take that to Eric Racine. Your opponents are saying that your, your team is not only anti-competition, but you're, in a sense, anti-progress. <laughs> I, I feel like I need to say something about that, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, I, I think we're clearly not. I think we're committed to, uh, you know, what science says and what kind of evidence we have about the impact of the use of these drugs on uh, social environments like college environments. And we actually don't have much data on that. So we're just saying, you know, wait a minute. 
uh, let's be a bit more careful. Let's be thoughtful about how quickly we want to go down that path. It is true that in some cases, we allow things to mitigate the risks, their risks, right? We try to curtail a practice which is socially problematic by you know, trying to mitigate the risks and reduce the harms to society. But clearly, we're not in such a situation. People who use these drugs to enhance their kind of performance are very few. So allowing would actually mean but you're, promoting. But are you really saying it's very few when we saw the show of hands in mm. our audience that, that now you did multiply your, your result by saying, and if you know somebody who has done that. But uh, nevertheless, do you really think it's very few at this point? Uh, I, you know, the, the data that we have on the general population suggests that this is something marginal and something which is actually, actually conflated by the fact that when the data are gathered on the non-medical uses of these drugs... The non-medical uses include partying, getting high on the drugs, and sometimes also, you know, studying better. So it's all messed up in terms of prevalence data, epidemiological data that would actually inform us on the trend. So I think, you know, the, the point about mitigating the risks actually is a moot point because if we're really concerned about, you know, the extent of the practice and we think that allowing would be a way to inform and mitigate, actually, no, I think we're promoting because at this point there are so few uh, doing this that um, we're just basically making it, we're, we're you know, publicizing it, I think. Response from I should, I should point out that Canadians are different than <laughs> Americans. <laughs> They're just nicer people. <laughs> And now we can vote for our second vote on the Canadian vote. Well, they're Canadians uh, on the ice rink and outside, right? That is true. <laughs> you would go head-to-head with Putin on that. Can I take yes, up, John, your... Farhani, your um, you brought us back to sports for a moment to say, you know, in sports we say it's wrongful. Um, and we have decided that, and I think that's okay. We can decide that. We might also make a different choice. We might decide we'd rather watch baseball where everybody takes steroids and hits home runs and that that might be more fun for us, but we're spectators and they're players, and that is a game that we like to watch and that we've decided what we want the rules to be. We're not in a game here. This is real life, Um, and college students are in real life, and after they leave college, they will also be presented with the same choices as to whether or not they want to take cognitive enhancers, if they want to take any other kind of drug, if they want to have a smartphone, if they want to take music classes, whatever they might want to do. And we can either protect them from having to make those choices and facing what the risks and benefits of it are in college, or we could decide that college is the perfect place to change the way they think by enabling them to have the information to make choices for themselves. Students should be equipped with the information about what the side effects and the benefits are. They should be equipped to decide and evaluate that information. And if colleges are in the business of nannying rather than educating, they're taking a moral position about what they think students should do rather than teaching students to think for themselves. I think that at this point, given the data, we should give students the opportunities to think for themselves. And it would be perfectly fine, if not legitimate, for people to decide not to. To Eric's point, many already do. These drugs are available. To be voting against the resolution would be voting to change the status quo. The status quo doesn't have that kind of future dystopia that Nicole spells out. Instead, what it has is some people making the choice and some people not. I want to let Nicole uh, Vincent respond. You can go ahead and applaud that line if you want to. (laughs) 
I want to let Nicole Vincent respond, but after her response, I'd like to come to you for questions. And just to remind you again, you raise your hand and I'll call on you. Um, a mic will be brought to you. Uh, please wait for the mic so that the podcast audience can hear you. And tell us your name. And if you're with the news organization, let us know the name of your news organization. Nicole Vincent to respond. I almost agree with everything that Nita says, right? <laughs> and that's what's so interesting, that we always agree, but then we disagree. Um, so, but I want to first uh, respond to what you said about dealing with competition. Indeed, these medications aren't the problem. The problem is what they enable us to do. The problem is the degree to which they make it possible for me to start sacrificing everything that I would like to have, all the other things, the time with my family, the time for, my, for myself, to do silly things like go to the cinema and so on and so forth. Um, the pressure of competition is indeed what uh, leads people to then encroach on their own values. So I agree, it's a social problem, it's not a problem with the drugs. But in, you know, but in terms of, am I trying to conjure some dystopia? Absolutely not. Um, am I anti-progress? Again, no. The simple idea is that, yes, as Nita says, this is about real life. It's not about setting some arbitrary rule. In real life, real things matter. It's not just whether you manage to get this point for that kind of performance in, in sport or something else. We have real ways in which our lives can go worse and go better. Now, sure, it's very important to provide people with information, but one piece of this important information which has been completely kept out of the debate has been this point about the social side effects and what exactly will be lost. It has been framed as a bioethics, as a medical debate, as a neuroethics debate, and that's what we've been worrying about. But that's not the point that we are making. There are many ways that your life can go bad even if you don't get a brain tumor. Like, for instance, you become that amazing gladiator and all you do is you compete, right? That's, that's the point. Well, and would that be a bad thing, Nita Farahani? <laughs> um, if people became automatons and lost their ability to make choices, yeah, that would be a bad thing. I just have a little bit more faith in college students and a little bit more faith in people than suddenly sacrificing everything they believe in. What? Thank you. Go ahead. Clap, please. <laughs> but <laughs> I think... One of the mistakes that Nicole makes is to assume that when a person chooses to excel in an academic environment or in some other way that is competition-driven, that that is somehow not their value, and that when they spend time with their children or their families, um, although I hope that not that many college students have children uh, at this stage, that they are somehow not choosing their values. But in fact, competition is just a value that they're choosing to maximize. If they're choosing to get ahead because they will create more opportunities for themselves, for their families for their lives in the future, they are choosing to prioritize that value over some other value. If they decide they'd rather study or work harder, they're choosing to prioritize that over partying and drinking. And I think that's great. That's the whole idea is that people should be able to make those choices, evaluate their own values, decide which ones they want to maximize and which ones they don't. I just don't believe that creating competition forces people to give up everything about who they are. It gives them the opportunity to advance, to flourish, and creates more opportunities for society and for individuals. Let's go to some questions from the audience. Sorry. Right down by the aisle here. And a mic's coming down the aisle to you, and if you can stand up and tell us your name. No, one more down. I, I meant one forward, sorry. 
Hi, my name is Michelle, and I'm a student at Georgetown University. Um, so I, this is just for the whole panel. Uh, what do you think are the socioeconomic implications of viable smart drugs and the possible stratification of knowledge between social classes? Okay, I, I, I want to take that to Nicole Vincent because that's, that, that's, that's your slow pitch on that one because that's your topic. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Thanks, Michelle. But they get to respond. Okay, so... I think there are extremely important workplace relations uh, issues here. So notice that the things that I'm drawing attention to have to do with the way in which people will compete, right, and the degree to which uh, people may simply not be able to resist the sorts of pressures that Nita characterizes as pressures which don't impinge on freedom. Man, when somebody you know, points a gun at my head and says, Nicole, money or your life, and I choose to say, okay, money. Did I freely choose that? I guess. Um, now, you know, people who are already disadvantaged people who already don't have a lot of political power, they are the ones that are most likely factory workers uh, to be put in the situation of having their employers trying to squeeze out yet more blood out of them, yet more value. They're the ones that won't have the political power to say, actually, I would like to make sure that I have a good life. So in terms of you know, uh, social stratification, um, if we could wipe out existing power structures, they would still be the sort of problems that I, you know, that I described. But right now, when I think back to even examples like in Australia, where cabin crew were saying, hey guys, don't make us work for 20 hours a day, because it's unsafe. This is on a budget carrier. Um, well, imagine if the employer had said, oh, you're right, thanks for pointing that out. We don't want to have accidents. Bad for the airline. Here, now it's a condition that you take modafinil. You're no longer unsafe. That's not something that I want to see happening. People who are already marginalized becoming yet more marginalized. All right, let's let your opponents respond to that. Uh, on John Chatterjee. So um, on the, uh, uh, the resources question, uh, it turns out these... Do, do you think it's a valid question, by the way? Do you think it's a serious concern? I think uh, inequity is a serious concern. Absolutely. Okay. It okay. is one of the most serious concerns for our society today. But I mean, and, uh, and in regard to this issue, and in regard to this it's issue, a in regard to this issue, it's a little unclear how that plays out. These drugs are not expensive. Students will tell you they can get them uh, fairly cheaply, uh, probably for the price that they might spend at a Starbucks for a latte. So, so resources in that concrete uh, sense is not, I think, as much of an issue. Um, I think. Sometimes it is hard to predict how this resource question plays out. And I'll give you an example, which is that when drugs like Ritalin first came on the market, the concern was that these would be used in schools in poor neighborhoods. So rather than bringing resources to the schools to manage uh, students, that we would chemically straitjacket them. That was the concern. What has happened? They are rampant in high-end, affluent schools and are not really used in, uh, in low in lower socioeconomic schools. So my point is, there are two points. One is, the drugs are not that expensive for kids to get on campuses. And second, we're not very good at predicting how this plays out over time. Eric, Christine, do you have a thought on this as well? Well, you know, I, I, I think it's, it is an important concern. It's a little bit hard to predict where, uh, how this could play out. I'd be concerned about its impact on uh, the general well-being and, and you know of work environments, uh, more stress, more ability to perform doesn't you know necessarily trade off to better work necessarily. So I think 
that we should look at this critically, you know, step back a little bit and think about really the kind of experience we have using these drugs for cognitive perf performance uh, enhancement. At this point, I think we have very little and uh, we have little data to guide us. So I think, you know, we should be careful. Edith Arahani. I think it's a great question and an important one. Um, and uh, there's a few kind of interesting things to put into the mix. I agree with what Anjana said, that it's unclear how, how it plays out. There's some really interesting studies that show how these drugs affect people are very different. Um, people, for example, at higher levels of performance IQ may not get as much benefit as people at lower levels of um, performance IQ, which would suggest if there was access that people that the gap would narrow between people and that's a gap that could some in some ways be made up so students come into college already with significant differences in the advantages that they've already had and this has the kind of counterintuitive effect of potentially narrowing rather than widening the gap but it depends on access and so making things cheaply available and increasing research and access rather than driving things underground into a black market that makes them more expensive from my perspective, is a better way of equalizing access and the benefits of the drugs. It's important, I think, to keep in mind when we hear Eric and Nicole talking about some of their concerns, they're talking about factory workers, they're talking about the workplace environment, they're not talking about our resolution. Our resolution is about whether or not college students should be allowed to take smart drugs. And if we aren't going to be banning it in society as a whole, we're talking about taking the small segments of people and saying, you can't have access to it. But once you get out of college, you're going to be presented with exactly the same choices of whether or not you have access to it. There's no reason why we would just take this little bubble and say, you can't have it. But everybody else can. That to me seems like okay. a bad a bad choice for us to I'm make. I'm going to go to another question down front here, on the aisle, and the mic's coming down your right hand side. If you could stand up for us, please, sir. Thank you, uh, Mark Naturno. I'm a fellow at the Interactivity Foundation. I'm, I'm sort of tempted to to ask the debaters. Uh, which among you have taken smart drugs in preparation for this debate, but maybe we don't need to go there. My, my real concern, okay, so I came into this with no knowledge about it at all. That would all. have been me asking, and I decided not to. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I was undecided when we began. Now I'm sort of like inclined to say you know, in favor of the proposal. You're On winning. the other hand, <laughs> a concern I have is with the, what seems to me to be the easy acceptance on the part of the uh, NIDA, actually, for example, because you've spoken the most of, about it, uh, of the prohibition against uh, athletes using performance enhancement drugs, which I think is perfectly analogous to this, and your um, and your and, and your sir, I, I'm opposition. Sorry, I, I, against, I need to ask you to focus in on a question. Well, this is the question okay. I'm asking about her. You know, the, the what the tension between your acceptance of the prohibition of athletes using performance so are, enhancement drugs. Are you asking sort of like what's the difference between yeah. the rules that say that athletes shouldn't dope but it's okay for students That's to? right. Okay, and, and let's in take particular, this is a real issue for okay. them, the athletes, Nita because it's their, it's their livelihood. So what's the difference, uh, Nita, between athletes not being allowed to take drugs and everybody agreeing that that's cheating and your argument that it's okay for students to do the same thing for, to so, enhance so their all, performance? So first of all, I wouldn't prohibit athletes from taking it. So, I mean, to start with, I think that, that's the starting place. But if you decide that you are actually opposed to steroids and you still need to be pushed over to the edge as to why college students should be allowed to take smart drugs, it's different in two important ways for me. 
One is the effects of steroids are different than the side effects of smart drugs. Smart drugs appear to be much safer, much um, more tolerable, and have far fewer implications long-term for life. The second is I feel like if we want to pick whatever it is we want to buy tickets to and celebrate, we can set whatever rules we want for that game. We can say this is a game, and we, the spectators, have decided that what we want is to celebrate honed talent that is natural. It's arbitrary, but we could decide that. We could just as easily decide we only want to watch people who are, you know, um, who are enhanced. That would be okay. I don't think life and cognitive abilities are the same as improving your performance in sports. I think real life is about continuing to improve what we know, knowledge, grow, and to enhance our ability. So I think everything right. we do is let about me, cognitive Let your opponents respond to the, to the question of the analogy, in which essentially in sports it's called cheating. So I'll, let me put it that way. If it's cheating in sports, is it cheating in the classroom? Eric Racine. In terms of the analogy, I think there are interesting similarities, dissimilarities. Some aspects which are different, I think, is just the sheer amount of people concerned. Professional athletes or, you know, uh, Olympic athletes, it's a very small crowd. Talking about college students is a huge amount of people who would basically go some kind of massive experimentation of trying these drugs without, you know, due knowledge about their effects and efficacy. So I think, you know, there are interesting parallels. I'm just, you know, the, the magnitude of the context is really different. And does it, it, does it strike be... you or, or Nicole as, as in that visceral way as, as somehow it's dirty and it's cheating? No. No. Not, not for me. Can I, can I elaborate? Sure. Okay, so Nita is again, see, I, I keep agreeing with her. Um, Nita is again completely right that, um, you know, what we choose to pay our money for, what sort of spot, whether it's enhanced spot or whether it's not enhanced spot, au natural, um, you know, let people choose. The, now, if people then pretend that they're actually you know, not using enhancers in a spot where it's meant to be au natural, that's cheating. That's, that does strike me as, whoa, man, wrong. Um, the difference in this sort of debate, right, is that very real things are at stake. It's not just like a matter of, hey, let's set up a, an enhanced sport. Let's set, set up a different league. Um, we are actually unavoidably competing with one another as, uh, as students. And the reason why it's cheating is because whatever it is that everyone does, that's the only thing that we can, you know, that everyone else is going to be bound by. If the rules are for everyone, don't use this, then using it becomes a form of cheating. Um, so, very different contexts. Okay. All right. I want to remind you that we are in the question and answer section of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan, your moderator. We have four debaters, two teams of two, arguing out over this motion, college students should be allowed to take smart drugs. Anjan, did you yeah, want to comment I, I on that? I just want to make one point about the, the sports analogy, which is that the analogy itself breaks down in some ways because there are certain kinds of enhancements we are comfortable with in sports. So, for example, beta blockers that reduce tremors, uh, golfers use this because it makes them putt better. We don't have a problem with that. People get, in baseball, people will get... Uh, retinal surgeries to improve their vision better than 2020. We don't seem to have a problem with that. So I would suggest that the analogy breaks down itself, that it's not that we are uncomfortable with certain kinds of enhancements in sports uh, or that we're uncomfortable with enhancements in sports. There are specific kinds, and that needs to be examined. Down the front row here. Yeah. 
Mike's coming from your left-hand side. Uh, the mic's... Um... No, there's a person bringing it to you now. <laughs> yes, it was miraculously at your chair the whole time. <laughs> what luck. <laughs> uh, hi, I'm Kyla Summers, and I'm a PhD student here. So your response to the inequality question is that it's just the price of a latte. But for when one in five children in the U.S. face hunger, not just poverty, but hunger, I think the expectation that everyone can buy that is a little pie in the sky. So my question is, inequality is a huge issue in the U.S. There's already a huge disparities in education where a lot of students can go to well, college. You're, you're, you've moved off the question again. Just nail, nail to the, go, zoom into the question. Okay. So my question is, is when one in five children cannot even afford food, let alone college, how does not, this not further create wealth disparities and even racial disparities when some people can go to college, use this, but a lot of people can't afford this? How is that this okay. only Okay, because you reject that latte comparison that was made. Let's take that to Anjan Chatterjee. Sure. Uh, so <laughs> we should ban SAT prep courses, right? This is, this is a huge issue of, uh, of disparities. And I think if you're concerned about disparities, then you can have clinics at your college provide these kinds of medications. The, if the issue is disparity, deal with the disparity. Uh, and uh, to me, the, the, the kind of disparities that we're talking about of the socioeconomic uh, conditions in which people are raised the resources that are brought to bear uh, in their lives before they get to college, SAT prep courses as an example, those are the things that make a huge, huge, huge difference. Uh, and I think, again, if you're concerned about the price of these medications, subsidize those in colleges. Okay. I'd like to, to, I'd like to go to someone who has a question for this side. Uh, I, actually, and I'm always favoring the front, so I'm going to move to the gentleman in the red shirt at the back. Then I'll come this way if there's more time. Hi. Uh, my name is Darren. I'm also a Ph.D. student here at George Washington University. Uh, my question goes to the side opposing the motion. What is the principled uh, reason that says something is an okay enhancement and something is not an okay enhancement? As a student, I drink many cups of coffee in the morning to get me going so I can get my coding done. How is that different than me taking a pill? Thank you. We were hoping we would get to the coffee question. <laughs> It's a great question, and I, I'd like to see where you draw the line on it. Uh, who would like to take it? Yeah. Nicole? Okay, Nicole Vincent. Um, notice, I don't actually think that there is, a, there is ever going to be a principal difference between different kinds of enhancements. You know, so is there a difference between, for instance, uh, spending, low, you know, spending late nights studying uh, or perhaps not having to spend those nights studying by taking Ritalin or Modafinil or whatever else? Um, that's... N- not where you're going to find a principal difference. The cup of coffee is another example. Here's the difference. The difference that we're trying to draw attention to is the way in which certain kinds of medications can make, indeed, competition much, much tougher. So tough that we'll be placed in certain situations that we, none of us actually want to be ever placed in, to have to make choices because other people decided that they're prepared to sacrifice loads of important things. Now, I am not the paragon of, you know, of a good life. Whatever things I like, right, you don't have to like those. That's not the point. The point is that any medication that makes it possible for people to extend their ability to stay awake 
to be productive for an extremely long period of time when you give people capacities, capacities you know, to extend themselves. What they do is they say, wow, I can now start being more competitive. I can make myself, put myself in a better position. The difference here is exactly that, that it enables people to make choices, to set a fertile ground for, A, others to make choices which will be coercive, coercive because they uh, produce pressure on us to sacrifice important things. And, and, and I'm not saying this facetiously to get back to the coffee analogy. You're just saying coffee just doesn't have that power. Um, a, coffee doesn't have that power, but B, notice that we're, we all seem to be assuming that the world is better with coffee. And I'm a big coffee drinker, right? <laughs> Seriously, I'm a huge coffee drinker. Um, now, do I think the world would be better without coffee? I really honestly don't know. It might be, right? Imagine if the world were without coffee. But the real point of the question is if coffee does a little of this, yeah. uh, what's wrong with taking Ritalin that does a little more of this? I mean, it seems very straightforward. Exactly that. What, the, uh, that if what coffee does is does a little bit of this. Well, then it doesn't provide yet a sufficient amount of in, uh, ability to encroach upon the things that are valuable in, valuable in our lives. Okay. And That's the other, whole point. Other side on the coffee question? No. I think it's an utterly arbitrary distinction, and I think it privileges drugs and assumes that drugs other than caffeine are far more powerful than they actually are. These are yet another way in which we can change our abilities and yet another way in which we can change our brains. They may not even be more effective. Um, In fact, neurofeedback has been shown in many instances uh, using EEG and a game on your iPhone to be more effective than taking these drugs for ADD. And I think giving students the data enabling them to see what's effective, what isn't, what are the side effects, what aren't they, having an open, transparent dialogue on college campuses where you equip students to make choices in light of those distinctions is valuable, including letting them decide whether or not um, it's arbitrary, whether or not uh, they want to take coffee, and whether or not it gives them an unfair advantage. They can make all of those choices if we equip them with the knowledge, not if we ban the knowledge from them and ban them from having the choice to begin with. Okay, I want to take one more question. And um, um, in the white shirt here, yeah. And the mic's coming from your right-hand side. When you're looking at your phone, it makes me think you wrote down your question. (laughs) You don't have to do that. Just let it flow. (laughs) Um, Okay, well, I won't read it then. Okay, good for Um, you. (laughs) So generally the discussion, and specifically the four team, has talked about this as though drugs, uh, these drugs are already legal nationally and they're not controlled substance nationally, but Adderall specifically is illegal to take without a prescription. So... Given that, approving this resolution means changing a lot of practical realities. Um, So who is actually doing the approving of these drugs, and who is providing them? Well done. Let's take it to Eric Racine first. Well, I, I think your question there is right on in terms of who's really evaluating and assessing these drugs for their ability to enhance cognition in healthy individuals. No one is, really. No one has approved those drugs for cognitive enhancement purposes. So, and how to do that, I think, needs attention. That's why I think we're saying, let's be cautious, let's figure out how we could actually do that, because no one has... Uh, expertise in, in doing that. Second of all, where are the drugs coming from? I think it's an open question. Black market, reselling, 
So I think that speaks to the really fuzzy practices that are going on, and you know, it speaks to the value of the claims that these drugs have enhancement effects. They could have huge placebo effects. That's something we, we can probably bet on. There are enhancement effects, you know, what kind of drugs people are using from from whom and so on, I think are okay. really important questions. And, and John, I mean, part of what I'd like to respond you to respond to is, is Eric's point that this sort of underground market by itself comes with all sorts of built-in dangers, and that is yet one more reason to oppose the motion. Well, the underground market is certainly of concern, which is why it needs to be brought to the surface. Right? So I would argue that we need to be open about this and that uh, that there is discussion about this. Uh, and so students are educated on how to use this as safely as we know how to use them. So that you don't, as I'm told, some students will grind up Adderall and snort it. This causes me palpitations. Right? <laughs> so my argument is that the, the, the fact of this going underground is, an, is the reason that we need to be able to talk about this openly. Okay, and we have done talking about it openly in this round of this Intelligence Squared debate. That concludes round two, where our motion is college students should be allowed to take smart drugs. Now we move on to round three. Round three, each debater will make brief closing statements. They will be two minutes each. Speaking first, to support the motion in his closing statement, college students should be allowed to take smart drugs. Anjan Chatterjee, professor of neurology at the University of Pennsylvania's Perelman School of Medicine. So I'm a morning person. (laughs) I typically wake up at 5 and am at my desk by 6. Late in the afternoon, early evening, like now, my mind is a mess. (laughs) If you think my comments had any semblance of coherence, you should be thankful for coffee. We've talked about coffee. Now, if we were in 18th century Mecca, or 17th century, I'm sorry, 16th century Mecca, or 17th century Istanbul, or 18th century Sweden or Prussia, my act of drinking coffee would have been illegal. I am very glad to be here and now. I went to college in the 1970s. As the joke goes, back then, people did drugs to check out. Now kids do drugs to check in. So the college experience for me was an important time in which uh, I got to find out who I was and what the contours of my personality was. Importantly, it was a time to make choices and even a time to make mistakes. And I'm glad for that opportunity uh, to have done that. If you think that college is a special time, it's a precious time, one in which students discover who they are, and importantly, they discover what their values are by acting and making choices, then you should vote for the motion that college students should be allowed to take smart drugs. Thank you. Thank you, Anjan Chatterjee. And that's the motion. College students should be allowed to take smart drugs And here, making his closing statement against the motion, Eric Racine, Director of the Neuroscience Research Institute at the IRCM. Enhancement, in principle, principle could be a laudable goal. The problem is smart drugs are just the wrong ends to get to it. Actually, it's a dead end or no means to get there. But I would hate to be arguing only against tonight. Unfortunately, I think there are genuine ways for individuals and societies to improve themselves. It's not rocket science. It's not smart drugs. It's basic and 
plain and boring, it's education. We know from societies that invest the most in their education systems that that pans out in terms of increasing socioeconomic status. And also, we also interestingly know that investing in, in education and childhood literacy is one of the best ways to improve the health status of individuals and populations. So I think, and this is something that has been alluded to throughout the debate, if we're really genuinely committed to enhancement and improvement of individual lives and collectivities, all, the only thing we lack is really political will to make this a priority and use the means that we know that are efficacious, they're not controversial, it's not rocket science, but it works. Thank you, Eric Racine. The motion, college students should be allowed to take smart drugs, and here summarizing her position supporting the motion, Nita Farahani, professor of law and philosophy at Duke University and director of Duke Science and Society. I have a confession to make. I take smart drugs. When I'm tired, I drink coffee. When I'm anxious or I can't sleep, I take tranquilizers or sleeping medications. I've tried beta blockers, modafinil, memory enhancers, and I've been lucky enough to have a legitimate prescription for all of these things. But that's a matter of luck and privileged access, not anything else. For me, the drugs can take the edge off. They can enable me to concentrate. They can enable me to spend all day long concentrating on Facebook or all day long concentrating on a piece of scholarship that I want to write. They might motivate you and give you abilities, but they don't solve for you whether or not you choose to spend your time on something like work or somewhere else. I've had more confidence at times. I've been more relaxed at others. I've been more awake when arriving in international destinations. I think these are all great things. I've done so fully informed of risks and benefits of taking drugs that alter my brain and my bodily chemistry. I've done so without fear of reprisal, and I've done so as a choice, a decidedly personal one, an individual one, and one that has improved my life. Not everyone should take smart drugs. They don't benefit everyone the same. There are risks and benefits to each and every one of them. But that's true of every choice we make in life. And college students should be empowered to choose whether or not to take smart drugs. And colleges are in the best position to empower them to do so. I urge you to vote for the resolution. Vote for liberty. Vote for choice. Vote to allow college students to take smart drugs. Thank you. Thank you, Nita Farhani. And that is the motion. College students should be allowed to take smart drugs. And here, summarizing her position against the motion, Nicole Vincent, a professor of philosophy, law, and neuroscience at Georgia State University. Okay, so I never actually thought that I would be a professor. Seriously. When I was 17, I dropped out of, well, I left home, I dropped out of high school. I spent two years taking drugs and going to warehouse parties. Seriously. <laughs> I was very lucky in that I met somebody who set me on the right track. And over literally 20 years of education, um, at the age of 39, which is around about uh, end of 2010, I was awarded two research grants, huge research grants, one in the Netherlands to research the social effects and legal effects of smart drugs, and another one in Australia 
to do with law and neuroscience. <laughs> I said, yeah, give it to me. <laughs> and I took both of them, right? And I really bit off a lot more than I could chew. I had to travel between the two countries, and I had no time. My relationship was going down the gurgler. When modafinil was offered to me, I did take modafinil. And guess what? It indeed increased my abilities. It increased my capacities. I was extremely productive. Look at my publication record, around about 2011. It's great. <laughs> um, problem is that I... The problem wasn't that uh, this had any bad effects. The problem was that I felt like an undersaturated sponge. And everyone was still expecting that Nicole Vincent, right? And they kept throwing me opportunities, and I kept taking them up. A year and a half after I started those projects, my relationship broke up. Seven years down the gurgler. Now, I'm, this is not a story about take modafinil and your relationships are broken, it will break up. What, the problem was that I hadn't reassessed what I actually valued. I created a fantastic opportunity for myself to make choices, which would then lead me to sacrifice the very things that I claimed were valuable. Um, we are not against smart drugs. We are pro-choice. We are just trying to get you to figure out what are the things that are really important. Thank you, Nicole Vincent. And that concludes closing statements and round three of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. And now it's time to see which side you feel has argued the best. We're going to ask you again to go to the keypads at your seats and vote a second time the same way, the motion being college students should be allowed to take smart drugs. If you agree with this motion... After hearing the arguments, push number one. If you disagree after hearing the arguments, push number two. If you became or remain undecided, push number three. Um, I've been asked um, by my producers to... You probably noticed that in the beginning I uh, mangled the word modafinil. Um, and the, the, the dirty little secret is that when you control the program, you get to fix your mistakes. Um, you know, they don't get to, but I do. So I'm going to just read my opening statement again uh, so that it can be recorded, and, and, and you're not going to tell anybody <laughs> that this happened, okay? Yeah. <laughs> How do you know I haven't? <laughs> okay. But what about chemicals that help students be better students? Well, we know that drugs like Ritalin and Adderall and Modafinil, which were designed as therapy for people who had trouble focusing or staying awake, are being taken by students not because they suffer from these deficits, but because it gives them a competitive edge. Thank you. All right, the final results are being tabulated, and while that happens, I want to welcome two gentlemen to the stage for a very brief chat about what's gone on here tonight, and uh, you're right down front, so we'll, we'll all sit down, and I'll introduce everybody. Come on up. So I'm introducing Greg Lukianoff and Nick Rosenkrantz. And Greg Lukianoff is the president and CEO of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, a co-sponsor. And I'm guessing that when you came up with the name, let's see, Foundation for Individual <laughs> Rights in Education, and, and, and it suddenly hit you that it also spelt fire. <laughs> right. that, that must have been an amazing yeah. moment. <laughs> I wish I could take credit for it, but it was named a year and a half before I joined. So tell us about, about 
Fire's participation in this debate as a co-sponsor tonight. Uh, absolutely. Uh, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education defends free speech and due process and academic freedom on campus. Um, but just because we're purists on freedom of speech doesn't mean that we think that all, er, all arguments are equally good and that people debate uh, equally well. And so but by uh, joining a debating, uh, by uh, joining with IQ Squared, we're trying to model good behavior when it comes to debate and discussion, that we can show that people can degree passionately about things, uh, but still come away thinking that the person I disagreed with was neither, was neither evil nor stupid. Um, and my ov- overall goal here is I think right now as a society, particularly on campuses, we waste a lot of cognitive energy to get to the theme of the, of, of the event on outrage and, and thickening the walls of our, uh, of our echo chambers. And I hope that we can teach people the habits of breaking out of those through debate and discussion. Terrific point, and thank you for, for having us. Um, and uh, Nick, Nicholas Quinn Rosencrantz. Nicholas Quinn Rosencrantz is a director of the Rosencrantz Foundation, uh, which brings these debates to New York and around the country. He's also a professor of law at Georgetown um, and serves on the board of directors for FIRE. And Nicholas, th- this, this is because of you that we got here tonight. So tell us how IQ2 and FIRE got together for this. So it seems like there was a natural synergy here. Uh, IQ squared has a premise, which is also the premise of American law. And it's the premise is that this is a good way to get to truth, to listen to zealous advocates, the smartest people you can find on both sides of an issue, and then reach your conclusion. That's the premise of the American legal system, so, which uh, I study and teach at Georgetown, and it's the premise of intelligence squared. Now, My work at FIRE, unfortunately, Greg's work at FIRE, I'm on the board of FIRE, Greg has pointed out that uh, actually on college campuses these days, uh, lots of these debates aren't quite happening because, you know, one side of the debate will be underrepresented or perhaps will be um, self-censoring for a variety of reasons. And this struck us as troubling, that these, th- th- this model for getting to truth is actually not as, uh, not as present, not as vigorous on college campus as perhaps it should be. So it seemed like a natural fit, and when Greg suggested this, I thought it was a perfect fit for us. And tonight we gave everybody an example. Mm-hmm. All right, thank you, gentlemen, for coming up and making possible. Thanks. And, and to that point, I just want to say this about our debate tonight and our debaters on the stage. They obviously have, have very, very uh, clear uh, philosophical, more than anything else, cl- philosophical differences, and yet they were able to address these with one another with great intelligence and insight and respect for one another and civility that we appreciate, and it's what we try to do here. So thank you to all of you for what you brought to the stage tonight. Dan, am I still waiting for the results? I'm not missing a piece of paper up here. Oh, here they come. Okay. Thank you. No, we are not all listening to your heels. (laughs) (laughs) We have have in New York, we have that solved with a little quiet pad so that whoever comes out, it's like little cat's feet. And uh, (laughs) so I'm sorry for that, Amy. Sorry for that remark. All right, so now the results are all in. Again, the motion is this. College students should be allowed to take smart drugs. Remember, we have you vote twice, and it's the team whose numbers move the most in percentage point terms between the first and the second votes will be declared our winner. So let's look at the first vote. On the motion, college students should be allowed to take smart drugs before the arguments were made. 27% of our audience here in Washington agreed. 44% were against the motion, and 29% were undecided. Those are the first results. In the second 
result. The second vote, let's look at the first team. Their first vote was 27%. Their second vote was 59%. They picked up 32 percentage points. That is the number to beat. Let's see the team against the motion. Their first vote was 44%. Their second vote, 33%. They lost 11 percentage points. That means the team arguing for the motion, college students should be allowed to take smart drugs, has won this debate. Our congratulations to them. Thank you for me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll see you next time.